Today, as we journey through the Gospel of Mark, uh, we arrive at Nazareth. Uh, Last night I checked my emails and there was an email, I kid you not, that said, from Nazareth. And it was from the Mitchells. Isn't that interesting? They've been uh, serving over in Jerusalem in a sort of a Salvation Army type ministry in that sort of environment. And uh, they've had a couple of days in Nazareth. And this is one of the things they said. Judy and I were treated with such kindness today. It was not what we expected. Isn't that a good reputation to have as a town? And I'm sure they'll fill us in more. But in Jesus' day, Nazareth did not have a good reputation at all. No. Now, it wasn't a nasty reputation. It was not like Russell in pre-colonial days, the hellhole of the Pacific. It wasn't that sort of reputation. It was more along the line of the butt of provincial jokes and regional fun-making. Now, even New Zealand, we have towns where uh, they are mocked gently or maybe not so gently. And a name popped into my head as soon as I thought of that. But I thought, I dare not mention this particular town for fear that I will offend a few of you. There is a particular town in this region where I was talking to one person and they said, oh, I actually hang my head and say that I come from the farm we were just out the road instead of saying the town. Now, Nazareth was very much like that. You may be familiar with the story of Nathaniel and Philip in 1 John. And they're two good mates. And Jesus asks Philip to follow him. And he's so excited that he seeks Nathaniel out. And he finds Nathaniel and says, this is Philip in John 1.45, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Do you remember Nathaniel's reply? Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? <laughs> That's the sort of town we're talking about today. And of course, Jesus sets Nathaniel straight. But it does indicate the sort of town that Jesus comes from. And today, we find him returning home. So let's dig in to Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. So the background, Jesus has been crisscrossing backwards and forwards across the Lake of Galilee. As Jesus and the disciples sailed over to the far side, Jesus had shown his power of nature by calming a ferocious storm. Having reached the other side, he showed his power over Satan by casting out not one demon, but 6,000 legion. Then he sailed back to this side of the lake where he showed his power over sickness by healing the woman and his power over death itself by raising the young girl from the dead. And so we've seen power over nature, Jesus' power over Satan, over sickness and over death itself. Surely as he makes his way inland up into the hills, he will be welcomed in triumph as the favoured son of Nazareth a little bit like Richie McCall coming home to Kurau after the 2015 World Cup. I mean, that's the sort of expectations we would have as Jesus returned to his hometown. Verse 2 of Mark 6. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. And all bodes well, doesn't it? 
He's back home. And as is his custom, Jesus attends church, the synagogue on the Sabbath. And as was common, he was asked to bring the message. So how does his hometown, how do the folk respond? Well, as was seen before, they were amazed. However, not everybody was amazed. Many, but not all. There's a little check here, because in all other cases in Mark, when he has recorded that the people are amazed, it's all the people, or the whole crowd, not just many. Still, following Jesus' normal pattern, we would expect after the service for him to heal someone or cast out a demon, and this would offend and upset the Pharisees. But this time, it's others that get upset, and we're quite surprised about who. For though many of the townsfolk are amazed, they are all struggling with how this local boy, one of their own, had become some great miracle worker and teacher. So as they try and make sense of this, they ask five questions. And we pick up these questions in the second half of verse 2. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Five questions. And you know, local people know a lot of things about each other, don't they? And here we see all this knowledge bubbling up that we didn't know about Jesus. And it raises our curiosity. So we're going to spend just a few moments looking at these interesting things that the locals have told us. And then we'll go on to the bigger picture about the meaning of these five questions. So, what are the interesting but non-essential things that we learn about Jesus here? Well, first of all, this is where we find out that Jesus is a carpenter. And this makes sense, as he was about 30 when he started ministry. And so, in the years preceding this, he was a builder. In Matthew 13.55, we learn his father Joseph was also a carpenter. So no doubt, father passed his trade on to his son. So Jesus would have had skill to do almost anything with wood. He could craft and make ploughs. He could, uh, or any other farming implements. He could make furniture and cupboards and stools, benches. He'd be able to erect small buildings, particularly making beams, window lattices, doors and locks. He'd be just the person that would have on the border managers. It'd be great. Just imagine Jesus and Les pottering around here, sorting out the gas which had gone off just uh, last night and getting it sorted. Jesus would be great on the border managers. He was technically skillful and he would have been physically strong. I mean, even tradies today, you know, have a good level of fitness. In Jesus' day, no power tools. You know, he would have been strong. Often in the classic art, he seems very thin, doesn't he? And, and a bit wispy of a man. But he would have been a lot more robust than I think classical art depicts. So he's a carpenter. The next thing we learn uh, from the locals is the name of Jesus' mother. This is the son of Mary. This is the first time Mary's been mentioned in Mark's gospel. Joseph is not mentioned at all in Mark. We have to go to Matthew and Luke to find out about his dad. And we'll pick up a little bit more about the son of Mary. And the next thing we learn is that he has brothers and sisters. Now we knew he had brothers from Mark chapter 3, but here we learn the names, and we also find out that he's got sisters. Now just a brief word about his older brother James, his oldest brother James. 
Now, the Gospels show that the brothers are antagonistic towards Jesus and his ministry. But this changes for James after the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul lists all the people that appeared after the resurrection of Jesus. So in those 40 days before the resurrection and the ascension, Paul lists all the people that Jesus appeared to. And he mentions the apostles twice, but he also mentions James separately. This is 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7 towards the end of the list. Paul writes, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So who's, who is this James who is not an apostle? Okay, You see, in Acts chapter 12, James the apostle is martyred by King Herod. So who is this James in Acts 15 who takes over the leadership of the church in Jerusalem? Who is the James that wrote the letter that has his name, the letter of James? Well, the answer is, it's Jesus' half-brother. And here from Paul we learn that Jesus appeared to his half-brother after the resurrection, his half-brother who had been antagonistic to him in his ministry. Isn't that interesting? love to have been there in that conversation. Wouldn't it have been great? James would have been minding his own business, probably in Nazareth, probably also a carpenter, you know, taking on his father's business as well. And then Jesus appears and says, Brother, come follow me. And James does. Isn't that good? Not essential, you know, to this part of the story, but I think very interesting and just shows us, fills out what we know about Jesus. Carpenter by trade. We learn Mary's name. Jesus, the son of Mary, and we learn about his brothers and sisters. Now that our curiosity has been um, satisfied with the local gossip, with the local news that, uh, that, that they've been given to us, let's look at those five questions and what they actually mean for the locals and how they understand Jesus. Well, looking at the first question, where did this man get these things? Yeah, notice they don't use Jesus' name. We did this man. Yeah, not particularly respectful. Second one, what's this wisdom that has been given him? That he even does miracles. That he even does miracles. See how they're getting a bit snarky, these questions? They're not as innocent as they first appear. And then we find this next question. Isn't this the carpenter? Now this is a much more significant question than appears to on face value. In our culture, everyone or anyone from humble conditions can rise to be Prime Minister, even if you've grown up in a state house, like John Key. In New Zealand, an all-black captain, Richie McCaw, can come from Kurao. In fact, in our culture, it's a badge of honour in many places that you have had humble beginnings and you have risen above them to whatever status you find themselves. But in Bible days, it was not like that. People did not move up the sort of social scale and it was very hierarchical and uh, very like a class system where everybody was knew their place and was put in their place and they were put down if they were above their station. And so them saying, isn't this just a carpenter, is their way of saying he couldn't possibly be a miracle worker or an amazing teacher because he is just a carpenter. The next question... Isn't this Mary's son? And this is where they're getting quite nasty. 
It's not like we remember Jesus when he was running around grubby-faced and wearing nappies. It's not that sort of comment. It's much more nastier than that. In the original Greek, the phrase is, isn't this Jesus the son of Mary? And that's a more formal uh, sort of translation and accurate than the NIV's, is this Mary's son? Isn't this Jesus the son of Mary? Now, Philip got it right. You may have noticed before that I had that underlined, actually, and it was Jesus from Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, Philip got it right. Now, that should have been Jesus' name. In the same way that formerly I would be Douglas, son of Trevor, Jesus should have been called Jesus, son of Joseph. In a patriarchal society, that's the way it was, unless unless the father's name was not known, unless there was some doubt. In a small country town, it would be always remembered that the wedding was in September, but Jesus was born in December. So you do the maths. Oh, ho, 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 ho. They would never forget that in a small town, would they? So who was the father of Jesus? Could have been Joseph. Could have been someone else. You just imagine small town gossip. So when they say this is Jesus, son of Mary, that is a not so polite way of saying this is Jesus, the illegitimate child. This is Jesus, the bastard son of Mary. It's a very nasty phrase. They should have been like Philip, Jesus, the son of Joseph. But the locals weren't. The next question we have is, isn't this the brother of James, Joseph and Judas and Simon and the sisters with us? Here they're saying, look at his brothers and sisters. They have no illusions of grandeur. They know their place. They're just like us, and we know who their father was. Who does this upstart think he was? And so sadly, verse 3 concludes with, and they took offence at him. They asked those five questions and their conclusion was we take offence in Jesus. They're saying he is merely a carpenter. He is an illegitimate child and wants to rise above his station and we're not having a bar of it. We are not interested. And it's like they're agreeing with Nathaniel. Remember Nathaniel says nothing good comes from Nazareth? They're agreeing with them, aren't they? Certainly not our local boy with visions of grandeur. And so they took offence. What are the disciples? What must they be thinking? They would have been quite shocked. I think they would have expected more of a hero's welcome. They'd seen Jesus' power over nature and Satan, sickness and death. And here they see Jesus rejected. And Jesus himself is on the one hand amazed, but on the other hand he's not. Verse 4, Jesus said, Only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honour. Jesus rejected in his hometown. And we had this summarised in those opening verses in John, didn't we? Now verse 2 and 3 of John chapter 1 describe Jesus' power. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus in his glory. And then just a few verses later in John chapter 1 verse 10, we have this. 
Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made but through him, the world did not recognize him. That's certainly what's happened here in Nazareth, isn't it? And then in verse 11, Jesus came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. And this is what's happened here in his hometown of Nazareth. Back to Mark. Notice the results of the townsfolk inability to give their local boy, Jesus, the credit. Verses 5 and 6. Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went round teaching from village to village. Now next week we're going to pick up on this teaching from village to village and also Jesus then commissioning and sending out the disciples to proclaim the good news. But for us today, what's our take home? How are we going to make sense and apply this? Well, the key to this passage is Jesus caused offence. Jesus caused offence. He did it then and he still does it today. So our take home is if we want to follow Jesus, we will also cause offence. Particularly good news, really, is it? So let's unpack this for a little bit. Up until now, it's just been the religious leaders who have been offended, like the Sadducees, who were the wealthy in the community. And so he's offended the wealthy. And he's offended the Pharisees, the pillars of society, the upright, you know, the, the good people that everyone looked up to. He's offended them. In fact, those two Sadducees were enemies, but they were united in one thing. They both took offence of Jesus and they both wanted him gone. Here we see Jesus offending the common people. Mr and Mrs Average, your next door neighbour. Jesus offends people across the board. He doesn't pick on any particular type of person. And so, we also, as we live out faith, from time to time will upset and offend other people. Let me give you an example. Often when you share with a Kiwi, especially Kiwis that have a Western mindset, they'll love the idea of free forgiveness and God's grace. But boy, are they offended when we say Jesus is exclusive. If you tell your average Kiwi that Jesus is the only way to salvation and not all religions lead to God, they're going to be offended. They are. And on top of this, when we say that even good, law-abiding, nice members of the community will not get to heaven unless they look to Jesus, talk about offence. They just don't like that at all. You can talk to them about how much God loves them, and they're quite happy to hear that most of the time. But if you say Jesus is the only way, do you cause offence? And so when we're following Jesus, expect pushback. Expect to cause offence. Now, none of us are happy with this. We hate it, don't we? I do. We'd much rather get on with as many people as we could and have people see us and our church in a good light. But there must be times. We don't go looking, but there must be times when Jesus will cause offence. So here's a couple of practical tips. If your faith never causes offence, something's wrong. Maybe you just keep your faith under wraps. Apart from church, no one knows you're a Christian, so you're never going to cause offence. 
Or maybe you're inconsistent. In some circles you're a Christian, and in other circles you're one of the boys or one of the girls, you know what I mean? Like at work or, or, or in the netball or the rugby club. Maybe there was a time when you did step out for Jesus and the pushback was so much, you just thought, oh, I'm never going to do that again. And so you just keep under the radar. And so, for our faith to be real, now and again, we need to cause offence as we stand up and stand for Jesus. Now, the second tip is... If your faith is always causing offence, if you're always getting pushback, maybe it's because you are being obnoxious. Maybe it's just because you're a pain in the bum. (laughs) And the Bible does not condone that. As we'll see next week, we need to be winsome. We need to be caring for people and loving them and serving them, not obnoxious. (laughs) I can think of a family member when it comes to big extended family gathers. She just will bail someone up in a quarter. And I admire her faith, but goodness me, there's a fine line, isn't there? So, if you never cause offence, be concerned. If you always cause offence, be doubly concerned. And it's the same for our church, isn't it? If we, as this church in Cromwell, never cause offence to the wider community, then I doubt whether we're following Jesus. Now, I'm not looking for trouble, but if we never cause offence because in the way that we stand up for Jesus, then I'd say we're not doing our job properly. And conversely, if we're always being criticised, if we're always causing trouble in the social media, or you can't get through New World with someone popping up to you and saying, do you go to that church? Blah, 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 blah. I mean, if that's happening all the time, then I would say that we're being obnoxious and we're not serving the community. We're not being winsome. And so I'll use a Goldilocks reference. When it comes to causing offence, it's best not to be too hot or too cold, but just right. Okay? Not too hot, not too cold, but just right. And of course the challenge is knowing what just right is. So our take home is to go out there and offend people. No. Sorry, I couldn't resist saying that. Now, someone's got to quote me on that. I just couldn't resist it. No, that's not what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Not at all. I'm not saying go out there and purposely offend one. But listen, our take home is that everyone who desires to follow Jesus, everyone who fixes their eyes on Christ, whose heart is captivated by Jesus, will from time to time cause offence. It's called picking up your cross and following Jesus. And it's his call for everyone. And when we do, when we cause offence, we follow Jesus' example. When he was rejected, he still went on about his father's business. He went from village to village, sharing the good news. Yes, Jesus was rejected by his own, and it must have hurt. It must have hurt. But even though he was knocked down, he did not stay down. Jesus got off the canvas and kept in the fight, always looking to place a smile on his father's heart. Jesus was rejected and not cast down. And when we are rejected, in any context, whether it's for Christ or in another situation, whenever we are rejected, we can cling to Jesus, who knows exactly how we're feeling, because he was rejected in his hometown. And finally, we see in this story, in this hometown rejection, a foreshadow of Calvary, a foreshadow 
and echo forward to the cross. For the high priest and the religious leaders rejected Jesus, as did the ordinary people. They rejected him on that first Good Friday, and they demanded that he be crucified. Not just the religious leaders, but the person in the street. And this rejection is a clear fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 3. Jesus was despised and rejected by men. Remember, this was written about 600 years before Jesus was born. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And this all came together on that hill called Golgotha on that first Good Friday. In John 1.10, as we've heard before, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. Just as it happened in his hometown, it happened on Calvary, on the cross. But with Isaiah and with John, this rejection is not the last word. Because in John chapter 1, verse 12, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus was rejected so that you and I would not be rejected. Jesus went to the cross and was thrown aside. He was rejected so that you would be accepted, welcomed and warmly embraced by the Father heart of God. And this rejection, this cost was more than we realise. It wasn't just the elite and the religious leaders. It wasn't just the average people that rejected Jesus. But God himself rejected his own son. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this was the cry of a heart broken as Jesus was made sin for us and was separated from his father. On that first Good Friday, God turned his back on Jesus so that he would not turn his back on you. We have open access to the Father heart of God because Jesus was rejected on our behalf. And this would be a tragedy beyond imagination if it were not for the glory of Easter Sunday and the resurrection. Imagine if it had just stopped at Easter Friday. History's darkest day would have continued and would continue to be black as black. But because Jesus was raised from the dead, the price was paid, the debt was settled, the anger of God was pacified so that we who should have been rejected have now been accepted. And this is the only basis by which we come to our Heavenly Father. Let me finish with these words. John 1, 11 and 12. I'm banging on about it, but what a wonderfully powerful verse. Jesus came to that which was own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is the invitation that is available to each one of us today. Let's pray.